Has all these issues that are in South Africa or in our society been solved through cancel culture? Please give me a comment in the comment section and, and give me an example. I don't think so. I think if it's, I think all it's done is create more divide amongst people. How do we end the phenomenon of cancel culture? Well, somebody who has some thoughts to share on this topic is comedian Joe Emilio. Joe Emilio, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, you're a, quite a well-known comedian here in South Africa. Uh, you originally came from the United States, but I think your heritage was uh, Egyptian as well, if I if I recall. Yes, that that would be correct. Well, I was born in. Uh, born and raised in Texas, so lived there for eight years, then moved to Egypt, lived there for nine years, and now I've been in South Africa for 15 years. My parents are a mix of many, many things, uh, but yeah, Egyptian, American, South African. Okay, so you're moving up in the world by coming to, to live here in South Africa. Um, but <laughs> more seriously, I mean, you apply your trade as a comedian, you're also a well-known YouTuber as well, and we'll get into how you got into the YouTube game. Uh, but uh, you have some thoughts to share on the phenomenon of cancel culture. What What is cancel culture, first of all? Yeah, so cancel culture at the moment in today's world, I like to think of it as as, as mob mentality, uh, you know, taking out uh, medieval times, they used to take out people who did a crime into the courtyard, so to speak, and, and would put them in those, in those uh, balls and chain or in that wooden construction as a uh, to hold their neck and their and their wrists, and then people would throw apples or tomatoes, and it would be just a humiliation, uh, just to humiliate the the person that did the crime. Um, today, I think we are equipped with social media and our phones, and God forbid you said a tweet in two thousand and I don't know eighteen seventeen that was considered offensive by someone and they decide to use that against you um, and humiliate you and attempt to try and get you fired from your from your job or even if you are self-employed that try and get rid of your clients or tell your clients and just shame you publicly to make sure that you can't basically earn a living. And um, I think this behavior is dangerous. Like, I don't think our humanity is, is, is getting any better by having this kind of behavior. Um, you know, we're told to be compassionate to one another. We're told to be tolerant to one another. And yet, if you have an opinion that someone doesn't agree with, then they're entitled to just ruin your life. And the worst thing about cancel culture is that, well, it seems that you don't need concrete evidence to, to really support your claim. If you know, they don't even look for um, if, 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 if you are called out for a tweet, they don't even ask, why did you make this tweet? They just automatically assume that you're a certain way and uh, they call for your head on a spike, so to speak. And, um, you know, I've seen and even myself gone through cancel culture. Um, I've seen a lot of people have their livelihoods destroyed because of this behavior. And again, being falsely accused of things they didn't do, which is the worst thing to, to happen. Yeah, so in a normal court of law, you would have to prove beyond reasonable doubt or on a balance of probabilities that you're either guilty of a criminal offense or a, a civil offense. Um, and there's a, a sense of due process. And 
unfortunately, given that many of these these actions happen online, uh, there's very little accountability for the accuser. So it's very low cost for someone to accuse you of wrong think or uh, having a regressive opinion, uh, but they don't feel the downsides if they're proven uh, to be wrong later. Um, that just kind of gets lost uh, in the, the sheer volume of, of, of the storm that, that tends to erupt. Absolutely. Uh, some people call it a Twitter, Twitter court. Um, <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, and absolutely, and and the worst thing is a lot of these people that that claim to know what the law is, they they claim to know, you know, oh, you can't say this because it's against the constitution or it's against the law, or that's defamation. Ninety nine percent of uh, of those people don't actually know what the law is. Uh, I know this because again, going through my experience, um, you know, I'm I'm currently suing someone for for defamation because they said horrible things about me, and um, you know, and they and as a result got me canceled. Um, and we're learning through this, um, through or I'm learning rather through this experience that basically. Um, these Twitter lawyers, or these, I think they're called Twitter eagles, legal eagles, um, don't know at all what, what the law is. And uh, they just seem to take things into their own hands. Just again, because someone has a different opinion, you know, you dare tweet that you support Trump, or you dare mispronounce the pronoun. Um, you dare tweet that you don't agree with Black Lives Matter. You dare tweet that you think um, that you don't think the earth is round or it's flat or whatever the case. You're deemed as a conspiracy theorist. You're deemed as alt-right. And uh, you should be dealt with accordingly. And that is through social media humiliation. And I think this is a very dangerous um, way of living because at the same time, it, it creates censorship. And there's a lot of people out there that even though they've done nothing wrong when they're prosecuted of these things. And I use prosecution, you know, for like in quotation marks, um, they, they fear to say anything. They don't want to say anything because what if they do say something and then someone else comes after them or the, or the job sees it or, or a friend sees it or a family member sees it, you know, and then they're, they're under more scrutiny and, it's 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 created this fear this environment of fear people don't want to tweet or engage on social media um and and frankly i think there's people in this world that shouldn't be on social media at all um but you're bombarded with anonymous accounts who um you know because they're anonymous they feel they can say anything they want and uh yeah it's it's it really is social media really is a jungle out there all right. So do you think that a lot of this is being driven by the technology, by the platforms themselves? Or do you think that there is something in our culture, uh, something emergent that that has also changed in terms of our attitudes, our beliefs? Or do you think it is purely just the platforms that we're using that that are creating the, these effects? I think it's a mix of both. Um, I think, you know, through technology, it's made information um at the touch of our fingers, you know, you can quickly Google something if you need information on it, but then that's the risk, right? Because you get different, you get different versions of information, depending on what platform you, you Google search on, or you search for that information. And then that gives power to, to an individual known as a keyboard warrior, because they can, 
just sit there all day on their phone or laptop and just continuously harass you, cyber bully you online and dig into your past to find something embarrassing that you posted uh, way back when. And I think we've also, you know, from a, from a society point of view, I think we've also become almost lazy and that has caused us to be more on our phones. It's caused us to also, uh, all of us have, we've seemed to have forgotten because we're looking at screens almost all day. We've seemed to have forgotten how to interact with fellow human beings. You know, and it's become this situation where I've seen it myself. I've seen people who I meet in person who are completely polite and nice, but the moment they're on social media, they're evil and they say these horrible things and they're swearing at their friends and family and disowning them. And it's like, but in reality, you're not like this. But then who am I? Who am I really? Who am I? Who do I really know? Then? Are you really the person on social media or are you the person I see in person? And I think our society has kind of become that we wear a mask um, when we're meeting people, when we're having meetings, when we're with family, but on social media, maybe that's our true selves. And that's kind of a scary thought if you think about it. Um, but I think that there needs to be some kind of etiquette when you're on social media. And I, I don't know if that's going to solve the problem, but I, I do know that uh, to answer your question, you know, uh, humans, I think, have taken advantage of the power that they get from social media, especially when they have an anonymous account where they can say whatever it is they want. Um, luckily, now there are some laws coming into place in South Africa. Some of it I agree with, some of it I don't, but basically you can be held accountable for a comment. That's one of the new uh, laws coming into place, which I think is good because there are some comments out there that are horrible, evil, uh, racially driven. And I think that person who says that, you know, just like hate speech, we have hate speech just like that, or, or not hate speech, but uh, there's a limit to our freedom of expression that should also transcend into social media. We should be held accountable for the things we say on social media because it can be dangerous, especially when you hear about how many uh, teenagers are uh, unfortunately, committing suicide because of the pressure of social media. And that's also a, another can of worms that I don't know if you want to get into, but but it is a, a symptom of social media and the internet that I feel as humans, we need to be very careful with how far we go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, earlier you used this metaphor of people wearing masks. I mean, during the pandemic, we've all worn actual masks. Uh, yeah. But I, I think I think the opposite, I think actually you're online persona is a kind of front or a, an identity that you're putting out. And that might explain why you find that discrepancy between your real life interactions with somebody and their online interactions. Because I think also what has happened is we've had this uh, tribalization in a way of people around political identity or other identity markers. And so when you're speaking online, you're very much aware of your base of followers, your your audience is scrutinizing uh, your words. So that tends to mean that perhaps maybe uh, you lean towards more extreme version of your views. Uh, you, you, you know, the, these platforms are often not very good for ambiguity. Um, that's why I think, uh, you know, it's maybe a good development that we have these threads that have now developed on Twitter, because you can actually see the full context of somebody's argument rather than just an isolated tweet. 
No, absolutely. Um, I I think it depends on the individual, to be honest. I think, you know, someone like like me and you, um, you know, we're we're in the public eye all the time. Um, you have your YouTube channel where you do these interviews. If someone comments in the comment section something you don't like, you're going to be, you know, uh, diplomatic about it. Um, and so would I. Um, but I think for people who are not like us, who the everyday person who just puts a post out and says, you know, support, for example, Cape Independence. Let's say someone supports Cape Independence and they decide to Facebook post that. Um, they might be hit with a lot of hatred um, and, and then disowned. And like, how can you say this? This is horrible. You know, you're not South African. And then someone screenshots that and sends it to, to that person's boss or clients in an attempt to get them canceled, you know? Um, that those this this kind of culture affects everyone it's not just people like you and i who may have who may treat social media differently i i know i do i mean i if i tweet something i tweet it and i put my phone down and i don't care what happens next and i try and keep it that way because you can get uh it is dangerous how social media can just suck you in and then you end up fighting when playing these mental gymnastics with someone for hours uh, but they actually don't want to listen to you or engage with you in any uh, civil way. They just want you to conform to their way of life and their opinions. Um, and, and that's not constructive at all. And you end up wasting half your day and not getting any work done. Um, so I tried my best not to engage with people who are like that. And I think it's maybe some good advice for people to also do the same. Like if you see someone who's trolling you just just ignore them it's it's best to ignore the the trolls but yes I, I think it depends on the individual um some people can handle it and some people can't what's quite interesting is that different platforms seem to have a different kind of etiquette i don't use instagram anymore but uh you very seldom see kind of big political bust-ups on instagram it's more uh you know about people it's a bit of a narcissistic vanity app as far as i'm concerned but uh you, you know, like the, the codes of conduct are different. And I also think podcasts and YouTube, it's much more conducive to nuance, to, uh, you know, having conversations maybe with people who don't necessarily share your views. I think I could do better on this podcast about showcasing alternative views. But you mentioned uh, Cape Independence. You know, I had some skepticism about the argument. I'm very much in favor of federalism. Uh, but when I had Phil Craig on the podcast, we had a really interesting discussion and I think it was really worthwhile. And, you know, if I, uh, if I reflect on often my interactions on podcasts versus seeing people's interactions uh, in other online mediums, I was often quite different as, as you said. Yeah. I, I think it does differ from social media platform to social media platform. Um, Twitter is by far the worst. Um, <laughs> it definitely is a very biased platform um, and favors the lefties by far. Uh, Facebook is not far behind it. I think actually the best platform for engagement with, with uh, viewers is actually YouTube. Um, that's what I've noticed on YouTube. Um, you do have people that will comment and say, oh, I don't agree with this. Or I don't agree with that. But it's usually a very casual discussion. Uh, whereas Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, people get really, really uh, aggressive. And um, I end up just blocking those individuals. But but yeah, it does differ from platform to platform. And also, people must remember, like, um, 
these platforms do have the option where you can take control of your timeline. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a group of individuals on social media that will have you believe that if you block them, then they somehow have won, um, which is an arbitrary way of thinking. Um, the blocking function is there for a reason. I always advocate for people to use the blocking function. If someone has pissed you off, has come onto your timeline and started insulting you, by all means, block them. Why should you succumb to, to cyberbullying? Because that's essentially what it is. You just put out a post. People have the right to not have an opinion. People have the right to post and say, I don't agree with you. But the moment they start coming onto your timeline and insulting you, swearing at you, then you don't have to tolerate that. I mean, there's a, there's a quote from a, from, a, from a celebrity that I like to use, you know, where he, he says that Twitter is like the open window in his kitchen. And if someone's shouting, through his open window in the kitchen, he's going to close that window. And that's exactly how I view it. Um, you know, you don't want someone shouting through your window, just close the window. Um, so yeah, I think, I think if people do that, they'll, they'll have a much more pleasant time on social media across the board. Well, my colleague Terence Corrigan often says that Twitter is a pox and a plague. And I think he <laughs> might, be, might be onto something. Absolutely. Now, Joe, you're a comedian and I'd like to just talk about the state of the comedy industry at the moment, because obviously this has a, a big impact on the nature of your work. Because if I reflect on all the comedy shows that I've seen in my life, often uh, during these shows, I've been quite scandalized by some of the things that were said. Um, and often comedians are saying things that would not necessarily be appropriate uh, to be you know, sharing in kind of normal day-to-day -day interactions, like with your family or your friends. Uh, but that's kind of the thrill of it in a way. So do you think that this uh, political correctness, this cancel culture is, is having, having a dampening effect on the comedy industry and, and kind of cutting comedians off at the knees? Absolutely, uh, without a doubt. Um, I have seen myself, um, some local comedians who are scared to say anything. I mean, oftentimes when comedy was still before the pandemic comedy, was still very much, uh, you know, uh, active and there was a lot of gigs, um, you know, comedians and myself would be like, ah, oh, do you think we can say that? Do you think it's okay to say this? Do you think it's okay to make this joke? We'd always vet it with each other. And in, in other words, a joke or whatever that we're unsure of, but there were some comedians out there that, that were fearless and they would say what they would want to say. And I had, I 100% support that. I, I think comedy is an art, you know, um, there's a lot of paintings and art sculptures out there that I don't agree with that I think are horrific. Um, and it exists because art is subjective. Art is something that, you know, what I might see or interpret from a painting, someone else is going to interpret differently. And comedy is exactly the same thing. Humor is subjective. So a joke that I may not find funny, someone else might find it hysterical. You know, I mean, look at Jimmy Carr, Jimmy Carr, Dave Chappelle, all these individuals, Bill Burr, who are all comedians who push the envelope, um, some more than others. Um, I feel that they need to. I mean, if they don't, who else? Comedians are known for holding a mirror to the audience and saying, hey, you know, what you're doing here as humans is kind of weird. If we're honest, let's just have an honest moment and talk about it. Um, and yes, some people might be offended and you have a right to be offended, but you don't have a right that because you're offended, you can censor me. 
that's not how it works. You can maybe ask me to apologize, but at the same time, it's like, well, what did I say wrong? And I feel that that engagement with each other, that ability to have a discussion, okay, cool, your feelings were hurt, let's talk about it. But at the end of the day, also take what I said into consideration, understand the meaning of what I said, understand the meaning of the joke, and then find out if it really was that bad of a joke. Did I really have evil intentions with that joke? There's a saying in comedy, we don't punch down. And what that essentially means is we don't make fun in a, in a horrible way, in a almost disgusting and, um, you know, um, almost to ridicule. Uh, we, don't, we don't use humor for, for that. And I think that's something that is agreed upon with most comedians. You know, if, if I get heckled by someone, my, my aim isn't to necessarily make them feel like a little man or to feel horrible. Like I don't immediately go after their race or their gender or anything personal, but rather I make a, a general joke about it. Um, so that that person might feel like, okay, I shouldn't talk during a show and, and the audience will feel like they're on my side um, and thank me for getting that person to be quiet. Um, Jimmy Carr, however, goes, I wouldn't say personal, but he, he makes it fun for the audience. Some people might find it personal, but at the same time, that's his brand of comedy. People know that when they buy a ticket to go see Jimmy Carr, that's what they're going to get. They're going to get personal. They're going to get this raw kind of attitude uh, in comedy and, and in, in what we call anger, angry comedy or insulting comedy. And people love that. And that's the other thing that people have to remember is like, you might have a problem with what Jimmy Carr or Dave Chappelle or Bill Burr said. You are an individual. You have a right to have, again, feelings. But if these individuals, these comedians are still selling tickets and selling out the artscape or they're selling out stadiums, well, that's the audience telling them that they enjoy what they say. Um, these people are selling out seaters, a uh, thousand seaters, 700 seaters, uh, 5,000 seater stadiums, uh, no problem. And that shows you that the audience says, you know what, your jokes are okay. Um, yes, and again, comedy is subjective. Not everyone's going to find it funny, but you know what? If you don't find a comedian's jokes funny, then don't watch them. I've been told by many people, um, luckily less than those that like me, um, that they don't like my comedy. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. But there are many more people that actually enjoy my comedy. And those are the ones that come to my shows. And that's absolutely okay. What we have seemed to have forgotten is to be able to look away from the painting, to look at a painting that offends us and, or a piece of art that offends us and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to partake in this, in this art. I'm just going to look away. And that's it. You know, there's no need to take the painting down and, 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 and burn it. There's no need to take the painting down and, and take it across town and say, you know what, this is evil. Um, uh, look at look at uh, that movie's uh, cuties. I don't know if you if you watched it, but that caused a bit of uproar because it was kids who were doing some questionable things in that movie, um, and I didn't agree with it. And I had a discussion on my show about it with with a philosopher who who begged to, who begged the argument. Like again, if we're going to censor art, where does it end? Cuties, in a way, needs to exist to remind people the the limit 
of what we're willing to accept. If the audience doesn't like it, they will reject it. And the audience did reject it for the most part across the world. There was uproar against this movie. And Netflix kept it up, which is fine. At least people can judge for themselves and see if they like this art or not. But again, what if, what if, what if they did censor it? You know, then would we know the limits of our morality as human beings? I don't know. And that's why comedians are so important in my, in my eyes. They, they keep on pushing that boundary and they keep on asking, what, where, where is the line as human beings? We've come from here, now we're here. You know, um, one of my favorite comedians uh, for the life of me, I can't remember his name now, but um, he, he has a joke where he explains that there's, there's the Ovington window and it shifts from, from year to year to year. And he was talking about cancel culture and, and, and how, you know, he made a joke in 2010. And at that time, it was on the line. It was on the line of what was acceptable. Okay. Fast forward eight years later, nearly 10 years later, that same joke comes creeping back. People are saying, oh, we can't believe this guy made this joke. How horrible, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, hey, 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 you can't prosecute me for a joke I made almost 10 years ago, which at the time was on that edge, was on that pushing the envelope, was acceptable at that time. Now, 10 years later, you want to prosecute me for that. It doesn't work that way. You have to take it within the context that it was given at the time that it was given. Um, and I, again, I think that's the danger of, um, of this cancel culture. They tried to do it to Jimmy Carr uh, in a, in recently uh, for a joke he made a few months ago. It wasn't even recent. Uh, and they tried to do it to Dave Chappelle because, you know, again, people didn't watch that, um, that, that new special of his closer. They didn't. Uh, listened to the entire show, and they took one bit that he said, they tried to um, label him as transphobic, when his entire joke was actually a tribute to the trans community. Um, and if they had taken the time to watch the entire show, they would have realized that. And luckily, he had some people that did support and uh, come in or speak out in his defense but uh, yeah comedy is definitely under attack and you can't say anything and, and it begs the question what can a comedian talk about because sooner or later even talking about the weather is going to offend someone all right well joe at the time of recording we've just had the president this week uh, announce that we're staying on lockdown level one there's been some changes to the regulations um, but for all intents and purposes we're moving out of the pandemic now what was the effect of the pandemic on comedy how were you able to adjust and pivot uh, like you did to online platforms like YouTube? Um, and what do you think is of the future of, of comedy after the pandemic? For me, when the pandemic first hit, um, I was uh, organizing comedy shows across the northern suburbs of Cape Town. I, was, I had a business called the Comedy Cartel. Um, and that's what we did. We basically went to venues, restaurants and such. And we said, cool, pay us a fee that will cover our expenses. We'll turn your venue for one evening into a comedy club. And we ran it with high standards, Cape Town Comedy Club standards. Um, and it was great. It was always a fun night and it was going very, very well. I had uh, almost every weekend was booked for me. And then unfortunately, uh, we got hit by COVID-19 and almost, uh, I think it was the week of the president announcing that we're going into uh, or that he was warning actually because he, he did two announcements he did one where he warned and then the following week he did we're in lockdown so the week before that uh, where he made the the week before he made the 
uh, final decision to go into lockdown, he gave a bit of a warning. And that was when all my clients, all the restaurants I worked with just canceled. They said, look, don't know what's going on. There's, these restrictions are hectic. Uh, everybody was in fear. We're, we're going to cancel the show until we see what happens with, with this whole COVID situation. So I was quickly uh, no income <laughs> before we even went into lockdown. Um, and I realized I had to do something and, and, you know, being under that harsh lockdown for the first three months of the lockdown, um, it, it was tough because I'm someone who, who likes the stage. I, I love the stage. I want to be on the stage. I want to perform. And then I was like, you know what, let me, let me do what I've been wanting to do for many years, which is start a YouTube channel properly, have a show, have interview people and just have fun on YouTube. And that's what I did. The first day that we went into lockdown is the first stream I ever had on my YouTube channel. Um, I literally streamed us going into lockdown at, I think it was like 1130 on, on, on the Wednesday evening. Um, and <laughs> yeah, nothing much happened. There was no tanks that roared. There was no alarm that went wow, wow, or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it, that was the first stream I ever did, and I haven't stopped since. Um, obviously, the channel has evolved and changed, and I've even had you as a, as, a, as a guest a few times, and that's been a lot of fun, and other great people, interesting conversations. It's, it's become a little bit of a political channel, um, which I don't mind, but uh, I, I keep my politics on that channel. I don't, as a comedian, I, I, I talk about other things. I don't, I don't talk about politics, but... Um, I found that I had to do something, you know, I couldn't just sit around and just wait for things to happen. And I decided to make a YouTube channel, uh, through that, um, you know, moving fast forwarding now to, uh, what the president said last night. Um, it's, it's tough still to have a show. I feel, um, I've heard of other comedians that have started shows again, um, you know, there was a time in the pandemic or during the lockdown when it was tough because I felt like I was bad luck because every time I wanted to organize a show, about a month later, we'd go into a harsher lockdown that I had to postpone the show. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe I should stop organizing shows and we won't go into a harsher lockdown again. Um, but um, it, it seems like, yes, you're right. It seems like we're getting out of it. It seems like things are easing, uh, but the restrictions on restaurants and, and venues are still, are still hectic. Um, the one venue I want to do my one-man show at, um, it, it still is only allowed 50% capacity, which, you know, depending on the venue sounds all right. But when you, the venue I'm working at or working with, they can only seat 80 people in total. So 50% of that is 40. And besides that you're halving the potential of what a venue can earn the revenue for one night it's it's daunting on both the venue and us as comedians you know as performers we want a full house yeah you could argue if you get 50 percent of the venue that's a full house because you're only allowed 50 percent but you can feel it in the venue you can feel that this venue is only 50 percent full um you know i've done shows with barry hilton where he was performing at uh, Barnyard in Tiger Valley. And that's a big venue. That's 150 seater. It's huge. The ceilings are high. Um, and he was only allowed to have 50% of the venue. And it was, it was fun. Don't get me wrong. I was extremely grateful to, to be performing with him. But at the same time, it, it's, it's knowing that this could have been so much better. This could have been 
instead of having 60 people, we could have had 150 people. It would have sold out. It would have been this amazing uh, roar of laughter. And uh, unfortunately, because of the regulations, we, you know, he couldn't get that. And of course, that also takes away 50% of his income, Barry's income, because he could have sold 50% more tickets, but he wasn't able to. And it's the same with my show. I, I can... I can only sell 40 tickets instead of selling potentially 80 tickets. Uh, so these regulations really do hurt uh, comedians and performers and the restaurants as well that, that host these, uh, these, these, these events as well as the theaters as well, because the theaters are under the same regulations to only have 50% of uh, people there. And I think it's, it's, it's extremely tough. And what, uh, what also irritates me and, and upsets me so much about the government and why I've been so outspoken about the government during the lockdown is we were forgotten. I don't know how many people realize this, but and not just comedians, but performers in general, musicians, magicians, actors, comedians, all of us as, an, as entertainers were completely forgotten during the lockdown. I know a lot of comedians that tried to apply for the COVID grants or the COVID uh, relief fund for entertainment. No one saw anything I asked. Um, we were never helped in any way. We, if, if we wanted to get help, we would have to set it up ourselves. We'd have to set up GoFundMe accounts or, or, or fundraisers ourselves to, to help one another. Um, you know, I helped a few comedians throughout the lockdown. I was helped as well. Um, we, we helped each other. We, we had to. But for the most part, the government just completely forgot about the entertainment world and the tourism world. I mean, the, like both of those industries, I feel, really were destroyed by these lockdowns, absolutely devastated. And the entertainment world, restaurant world, hospitality world, tourism world are struggling to get back onto their feet. And there were some comedians, uh, the well-known guys, you mentioned one of them, Nick Rabinowitz, um, they were able to do online gigs. They were able to host their own stuff, but that's because they've got a huge following. You know, they say that they're doing an online gig. They're going to sell tickets. I know Mark Lottering sold a crazy amount of online tickets during the lockdown, which is great for him. But guys like me that are still up and coming slash starting to be professional, starting to get the name out there, um, it was tough. You know, there's still a few people uh, who, who say, who's Joe Emilio? Um, and, you know, that's either my fault or not, but that's besides the point. The point is that unless you are a well-known comedian, you used, which by the way, well-known comedians still struggled. I'm talking about like the Nick Rabinowitz, the Barry Hiltons, the, the Mark Lotterings, they still got a, a hard knock during the lockdown. Uh, look at Kurt Skunrad, who owned Cape Town Comedy Club. His comedy club is gone due to lockdown. Um, I... I say this cautiously, last I heard, the source I got told me that they didn't even get help from the government. I haven't verified that statement, but that's what I heard in the comedy industry. Um, and, and it's really sad to me that that happened because Cape Town Comedy Club was a treasured spot in the comedy industry. It was the only dedicated stand-up comedy club in Cape Town every day. They had comedy. Well, Mon it was to Wednesday to Sunday. They had comedy evenings. It was always a great lineup, great food, great, great venue. Uh, and now it's gone. Um, and there's been a lot of theaters that have gone because of the lockdown. The Fugard Theater, one of the most renowned theaters in the entertainment business in Cape Town and in South Africa, gone because of 
the lockdowns um, and these restrictions. And the fact that these restrictions are going to continue is, uh, David, I can't even begin to explain to you how angry I am about that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is missing when these regulations are imposed is, you know, often it's some bureaucrat in Pretoria doesn't quite understand the many complex ways in which these rules are going to be affecting people and their day-to-day lives. And I think comedy is just but one area, but there's so many different areas of an economy, of society uh, that have been affected by this. Um, And then on comedy specifically, I think what I've always found interesting about comedy, it's not just one-way broadcast, right? It's You can watch a comedian on your television and you can kind of have a, a wry chuckle at home, but it's quite different actually being in the venue and there's a kind of a dynamism to that audience interaction and the best comedians will will hold the audience in the palm of their hand and, and feed off of the audience. And I think that's a, it's a very intangible kind of quality that the best comedians have, but uh, you need you need the audience to to be there uh, to witness it firsthand. Absolutely, I I get a lot of questions on my on my channel uh, when people watch me live. Like, hey, why don't you do like a comedy evening? You know, tell a few jokes and stuff. And I did it once during the lockdown because at the time during the lockdown, comedians were going online. It was like online everything. Like, just let's try this, let's try that, let's put a lineup together, you know. And for a while, it was great. And one comedian, uh, Mario Campbell, did an excellent job on Instagram Lives where he would do an hour show, and and I was a part of it every now and again where he would just, you know, one comedian would have five minutes, another comedian five minutes, and so on and so forth. It was a whole lineup, and it was great. Um, but the biggest problem is that you didn't have that audience interaction. And with some of these live streams or these online uh, shows, that was the biggest problem. Um, Mario was great in the sense of, like, he hosted it, and then he would laugh at your jokes, which helped a lot. But there was a lot of other online um, shows that didn't have that, where the host would just disappear. And then it was just you as the comedian, you're telling your joke, you don't know if you're getting laughs and the emojis are a bit delayed. They're laughing at something you said 10 seconds ago. And so you kind of pause because you want to like acknowledge them, but at the same time, you're not sure. And some people are just really mean and just flat out say, you're not funny. And that's the only comment you fixate on during the entire show. Um, meanwhile, everyone else is laughing. Apparently, you don't know, but you don't know. You don't know if they're laughing for a long time, they're laughing for a short time. And like you just said, you you need that energy. A comedian feeds off that energy. Musicians as well. Musicians, they depending on the music and depending on the setting, uh, will feed off the energy of the crowd. Um, you know, if it's an acoustic night, not so much. They just play acoustic, chilled vibes. But uh, if it's a rock concert, they feed off that energy. Um, And comedians more so. You know, if you have a a musician just playing some tunes in the background, you can still have a conversation with your mates and enjoy the music. Whereas a comedian demands you to to give them attention because you need to listen to the joke. You need to hear the punchline. And it it just feels online like it's, it's so naked. It's so... Bear. It's so bleh. I I I I I used to do it. I did it a few times. I, I did it differently. I tried to use props to kind of create a conversation starter as well. And I, in the conversation, I would just have like a trying to have like a funny conversation with the host. Um, I felt that worked a lot more than just sitting there and just 
telling jokes. Um, because again, you can't hear that laughter. You're just like, and so yeah, that's when I decided to leave the bar. <laughs> anyway, so my next joke, uh, it's just so awkward. It's so weird. And I, I, I look props to all the comedians that did it. I mean, it, it, it was, it was, I still watched a few of these shows and I laughed. I had a good time and I'm sure a lot of other people did as well. But for me as a performer, I'm like, you know what, guys, I, I need an audience. And that's what I tell the people that ask me now, like, Hey, why don't you do an online show? It's, it's like, no, I, I need an audience. Um, I'm more than happy to do a show and, and have, uh, which is kind of a workaround the, the, the restrictions of, of, of having uh, only 50% of the audiences. If you live stream, your live show um so you have your live show where there's 40 people or whatever ha what, or what might have you and then you have cameras and and you live stream it and you have online ticket sales um i've seen some comedians do that and it seems to work as well um which is something i am considering doing myself uh just to get around that um that that limit but again you'll never hear you could have a thousand online ticket sales You'll never hear that audience. You'll never know what they think. You'll, you know, because during a show, you can't really look at a, at a comment or something that might destroy the flow. Or maybe you can. Maybe you can figure out a way where it can work, but make it part of the show. But anyway, um, yeah, the the online business of comedy has grown, and I think I've seen a lot of comedians try different things. There was comedians that, uh, and again, the well-known comedians. You know, uh, they started to sell their services as um, I think they use Zoom to basically do corporate uh, gigs where the corporate would hire them for like 30 minutes just to tell a few jokes, uh, you know, uh, and, and Zoom was a great platform because you could hear the feedback. Um, you could have, you know, upwards of 10 people on on the on the platform and you would hear them laugh. Sometimes it was delayed and sometimes it was, ha! Ah! And then, you know, they would freeze. Um, but again, it just adds to the comedy and, and, and the comedian would just have a bit of fun with it. So, so the corporate thing kind of worked, but again, you needed to be well-known and the corporates needed to know who they were paying for. So only guys like Barry Hilton and so on would, would get these big gigs. And uh, I think that helped them a lot during the lockdown, but nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing can replace the excitement of, of a live audience in a theater. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned those corporate gigs, and I've spent a bit of time in corporates in my early career as well, and I saw some of these shows, and often what I found interesting was that the comedian could say things that were completely outrageous uh, that you would never hear, for example, the CEO saying. Um, there's something almost like that the comedian plays the role of the court jester. And one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare plays is King Lear. And in there, the character of the fool is one of the most important characters who very subtly uh, satirizes the king, uh, criticizes him, and he's able to do that because that's his defined role, whereas, whereas others are not able to, uh, to, to do that. So I think it's very important that uh, we recognize that role that, that comedy plays in our society, that it's it helps us to kind of uh, pierce the veil and to uh, look at the underlying norms and assumptions of our society and, and kind of not take ourselves too seriously. I think uh, what's been troubling about this 
this kind of wave of cancel culture that we've been talking about is just the earnestness uh, and the, the puritanicalism uh, that, that, that we see. Um, so Joe, just getting back to the, to the topic, I mean, how do we go about canceling cancel culture? How do we emerge from this uh, kind of stifling uh, phase that we're going through? Yeah, look, I have some ideas on how we can fight back. Um, I think, uh, but before, if I may, before we get to this, to that, I do want to comment on what you said about, about the Shakespearean uh, situation, because I studied theater. Um, and what is interesting, I, I like that you bring up that play, because during that time, uh, that was controversial. That was something that, you know, was kind of unheard of in Shakespearean times, where the jester made fun of the king. That was something that during medieval times didn't happen. You, as a jester, if, if I was a jester during those times and I made fun of the king, my head would be chopped off. Um, I could make fun of other kings. I could make fun of his enemies. I could make fun of certain other things, but to make fun of the king was seen as you just don't do. And there's kind of an interesting parallel to that in today's society where, or today's South Africa, where it's, it's almost wrong or seen uh, how do you say, seen in bad taste to make fun of the president of South Africa. You can make fun of the president of the US, that's not a problem, there it's okay. But for some reason in South Africa, I've noticed that to make fun of the ANC or to make fun of Cyril Ramaphosa or any president, unless it's Zuma, um, seems to be a bit taboo. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't really make fun of the ANC, you shouldn't really make fun of Cyril. Uh, and that to me is, is reminds me of, of, of those medieval times. But um, anyway, I just wanted to comment on that. But to get back to your question, um, the solution or the way to fight back, I think is there's many ways. And through my own experience, I, I've, I've learned this. One, and here's the biggest one, ladies and gentlemen, for anyone who's listening, if you ever get accused of something you didn't do and you're experiencing this cancel culture or someone has taken something you've said out of context, they've taken something you've posted out of context, and they've accused you of horrible things that you know for a fact that you can prove that you're not, fight it. Stand up and fight back. You will get pushed back but the majority of people will be on your side because once they see the truth and truth prevails, and I know that's a corny thing to say, but it's true. If you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, can prove your innocence, then fight it. There are too many people that just roll over and accept it, especially if you lose income uh, over something you didn't do, over something that you're not, over something that you're accused of being, but you know that you're not. Um, 100% fight it. And if you can, um, I don't advocate for uh, fighting cancel culture with cancel culture. I, I, I think that that's a bad way to go about it. Um, because, you know, let's say, David, for example, you try to cancel me, I lose income. And then I decide to do the same thing back to you. Well, you know, then now you lose income. Now we're both out of a job. Now what? You know, it doesn't really, I would really want an apology, but at the same time, it's like, well, I can't, you know, it's, an apology isn't really going to help. It's not going to get my job back. It's not going to get your job back. It's not going to help. We're both just worse than we were before. Um, what I would rather people do is tell their story in a diplomatic way, you know, um, 
you know, David said this, David said that. Um, I wanted people to know about it. I'm not asking for people to go and cancel him. I'm just telling my story. And then you're going to get, uh, if you can afford it, a lawyer's letter, you know, and, and that's why I encourage people to tell their story as long as they can verify their story. Um, because public is actually quite forgiving. I think the public is very, very, very much against cancel culture. They don't like it. And I think a lot of people have been affected by it and haven't said anything. And it seems like those are the individuals that really get behind your corner and will say, here's some cash, fight this legally. And I think legally is the best way to fight it. And, and let me just also put a bit of a disclaimer there that unfortunately in our in our South Africa at the moment, taking the legal route, it's long, guys. It, it takes time. You need a lot of patience. And COVID, unfortunately, what happened to me happened during COVID, so it prolonged the, uh, the process. Um, but either way, um, it does take time. It's not something that's going to happen in, in weeks or months. It's, it's, it might take a year or even two years. Um, I'm currently still fighting, and it's been over two years. Um, and, but again, that's, that's, uh, there's a lot of reasons why it took so long. Um, if, if I can quickly say, you know, make sure that both parties get a lawyer because that's going to help. You know, if, if you're suing someone for, for defamation, encourage them to get a lawyer because that's going to, if you both have lawyers, it's going to go so much quicker. Um, and then the other thing is just uh, hope that you're not doing it during a pandemic because that's going to prolong things as well. Um, but other than that, uh, it is going to take time. Lawyer up if you can. If you don't have the funds, ask the public. You will see as long as you are true and as long as you can prove that you've done nothing wrong, you will see that the public is very forgiving and you'll get a lot of support. And another way uh, is, and this is a, a plea to the corporates out there that might watch this, um, stop giving in to the mob. Just, just stop giving in. Stop worrying about your sales going down because they won't. You know, th this is one thing that I wrote in my article about cancel culture. Has cancel culture really cured the things that people are being canceled for? Has it really made our society a better place to live in? I mean, take a moment to think about that. Take a moment to really digest that question. Has, has racism been solved? Has, has load shedding been solved? Has, has all these issues that are in South Africa or in our society been solved through cancel culture? Please give me a comment in the comment section and, and give me an example. I don't think so. I think, if it's, I think all it's done is create more divide amongst people. And I think corporate, the corporate world are a big, big, problem or a big, big catalyst to this divide because people go to the corporate like, oh, I'm going to boycott McDonald's. I'm not buying another shoe again. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to buy chicken again. And then they get a bit scared. It trends on Twitter for a little bit and then they give in. But I'm telling you now, look at Netflix. Netflix didn't give in to all the calls from the trans community to, 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 to cancel Dave Chappelle and take off his show. And it's quiet down. People still watch his show. People still uh, subscribe to Netflix. Netflix probably got more subscribers out of it, but I do think that uh, corporates 
are to blame or share a bit of responsibility in the advancement of cancel culture. And they need to stop being scared of the mob because people forget very easily. Next week, there'll be something else trending on Twitter. And trust me, if people really like your chicken, they're, they're, they're going to like, they probably won't buy your chicken for like a week and then they'll be right back there buying chicken. Yeah, and I think one of the side effects of this cancel culture is that it creates a chilling effect that maybe people are a bit worried about what the effects are going to be. And obviously, companies are very allergic to anything that might tarnish their public image. Um, but as you say, a lot of these storms blow over. Uh, you know, if you consider the Joe Rogan um, uh, scandal over some of the guests that he had, uh, you know, talking about uh, you know, the vaccines and so on. You know that um, that also just kind of blew over, and and he stood his ground. Spotify stood behind him, even though you know some notable artists like Neil Young were saying, "Well, we're not going to be on this platform uh, if he's here." And so I think it does take a few people just to to kind of stand up and just to say, "Well, look, if you don't like it, then uh, you know, I'm afraid you might have to go somewhere else." But I'm not going anywhere, and uh, you know I think that's how you kind of build this uh, kind of passive resistance to to cancel culture. Yeah, I think I think what people need to realize, especially corporates, um, is the audience will always decide. And the audience that you are catering for isn't necessarily the loudest person on Twitter. It isn't necessarily the loudest group on Twitter. Yeah, you might see a clip that gets um, let's let's take let's bring it home and, and use the Gareth Cliff incident between Nando's and Gareth Cliff, you know. There was a clip shared from his show, which got, I wouldn't, I don't know if it went viral, maybe in South African standards it did, but, but it got a lot of views and it got Nando's kind of scared. They were, their feathers were shaking a little bit and they ended up canceling their sponsorship. You know, maybe uh, in their defense, they got tired of all the attempts of canceling, you know, it probably wasn't the first time, but at the same time, I highly doubt it affected their sales. Um, Anandos is a global uh, company. And um, I, I don't think 10, 20, 50 people that decide to not eat the chicken for a few days is going to really hurt their, uh, their sales. And at the same time, I highly doubt that the majority of South Africans even heard um, what Gareth Cliff said. Um, I, I, I really think that the majority of South Africans uh, wouldn't even know the story and that the sales still did well. Um, and that's why I say corporate shouldn't give in to, to this mob justice that, that is going on because they're just feeling it because that just gives, you know, the next time someone feels offended by something someone said, um, then that just gives them, you know, reason to to go after them and be like well i'm going to go after your company i'm going to go after the people that sponsor you i'm going to go after your clients because they'll have to listen to me because look nando's listened to to me before so they're going to listen to me again you know uh, or a company will listen to them again and they've just made examples and and yeah you're right uh, bringing up you know joe rogan and, and 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 spotify is a great example of companies and artists working together to say hey let's let's just stand up here and say you know there's a limit to to what uh, to 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 how far the cancel mob can go and again dave Chappelle and netflix is another good example um and and i hope 
that more companies will do it because people are going to get tired eventually of this cancel culture. Um, people need to be careful with what they say out there. People need to be careful with what they accuse people of. Um, and the more that people fight back, the more that people use the legal system, the more that people just don't tolerate it. Because at the end of the day, these people that are whining are just toddlers throwing their toys out of the cot. And like I said, next week, Twitter will be moaning about something else. So Emilio, thank you for sharing your solutions with us. You're welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me.